Hi, welcome back to the Manufacturing Come Up. Today we have a awesome guest, Kyle Milan, and he'll probably have to correct his last name because I mess up everybody's last name, first name, and, and just about every English word there is. Uh, but excited to have Kyle on. He's made some major accomplishments in life. Let's have him on now. What's going on, man? Glad to have you. Thanks for thanks for having me come on. Yeah, everybody always messes up the last name. It's Mylan. Mylan. I'm not Italian. I'm not Italian, but it looks Italian. Yeah, I just I just can't say English English words, so that's the problem for me. <laughs> <laughs> I have the same issue too. So now that I got you live, I was I was waiting to go live to tell you that as of right now, I'm diving deep into your content. Uh, I've been watching pretty much all your YouTube videos as far as YouTube content goes, like. You're, you're what I'm consuming uh, almost 100% just because uh, I'm corely focused on like my sales, my sales initiatives, and uh, just becoming a better sales individual, right? Um, I always try to yeah. be like the best. Oh, I appreciate that. Yeah, no problem. I appreciate that. No problem. I'm, I'm glad somebody's watching it, man. We've <laughs> produced enough content. I'm glad somebody's out there consuming it. So go ahead and give us a, a quick rundown of kind of where you're at. Yeah, so um, I own two two companies in the industrial space. MFG Tribe is an industrial marketing agency, and then Technical Sales University is an online sales training platform for sales engineers. Um, based out of Austin, moved here four years ago uh, from Chicago. Five no, five years ago now from Chicago. Got a team of fourteen people. Um, we deal with some of the largest industrial companies and also some small ones uh, from a marketing standpoint two passions that I know the most about is sales and marketing sales first and marketing second. Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah. I, I feel like for me personally, like I gotta, I gotta have a pretty good grasp on the marketing side of things, but like the sales side of things, I'm still, I'm still figuring that one out. Yeah. Yeah. That could be a beast. Uh, that could be a beast to take on. But if you look at it from a simplistic standpoint, it's really not like there's just some core things that you just do every day and it, it becomes cake after a while. Yeah, one of the big things that I that I've personally been focused on is like I'm good at the in, inherently helping the customer out, adding value, like all those things, right? Those that's not like where I run into complication on the sell side of things. Where I run into complication on the sell side of things, and it's not even just on sales, but it may be even on the ex execution side of things. It's the combating rejection and, and combating, oh, yeah. you know, objections. So like, yeah, so like dealing with objections and then overcoming those and, and still trying to close the people. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. From that. Yeah. Yeah, um, I'm sure that, so the way I look at it from an objection handling standpoint is there has to be some common objections that you get, right? Yep. If you were to say, if you were to track them all, is it like typically one of three things, two categories of why they object, would mm -hmm. you say? Yeah. What, I mean, what, do you, what do you think you've seen? Yeah, to be honest, like I'm not, I'm not sure that I've really been collecting enough of that that particular data to know exactly what the rejection is. Um, yeah, maybe and maybe something simple like like how like how are you going to help us, right? And it's like sometimes I notice like some of it's like a, a frame, it's a frame of mind as much and not even as much of an objection. Definitely, objection will change the frame. But right. a lot of times it's also in the frame of like, how are you going to help us? Like in, in certain instances, like I handle that fine. And other times I'm like, what do you mean? How am I going to help you? We're going to install a robot cell, you know? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's, it's like, yeah. So, so there's two things with that. Number one, you have to identify a problem first, right? And so by asking fact finding questions, you can either identify the problem or get them to identify the problem for themselves. Mm -hmm. So asking them questions in your case of, of selling automation type things, efficiencies, downtime, productivity, like going around, figuring out the metrics that they're being tracked against, daily problems that they might have. How can, how can you ask questions to get them to bring those problems up to the surface so then you can speak specifically to those problems and offer them the solution? But honestly, at the end of the day, if there's no problem, that they have, even if they, even if there is a problem, they don't see it, you're not going to be able to solve it. So that's right. the, in those cases, it's just move on to the next person right. type of thing. Right. Yeah. But like, you got to identify that problem first. It, it's kind of funny. I, I've, I've mentioned this before, but um, I've, I've not had any one particular sales meeting that was bad. And, and I had one 
somewhat recently, it was like a month, a month or two ago, that was like what I would consider my worst sales meeting. And, and, it, and it was a simple, like, I want to know how you, how you're going to help me. And, and, and yeah. I think a lot of it was framing, right? There was something about like how my, just the way my mind was framing at the moment, kind of like similar to like whenever you're giving a speech and you kind of just lose your train of thought of where you're at. Right. And so like that kind of put me yeah. in like a, like a off footing and in, in the conversation really nothing bad happened, but it was just like more of like, okay, well then I guess I'm not going to move forward with you guys. You know, it was a simple letdown, but it was a very, it was a direct letdown. And it was, it was also a potential opportunity that, that for them, for automating the process made 101%, uh, 101% sense. Right. Okay. Like it was something that they definitely needed to do. They had like six people doing like palletizing of, of boxes, right? Yeah. And uh, so like automating it, 101% they need to do it. Their mind was already around, hey, we need to automate this process. So it was more of a showing showing capability, showing, I guess, the value that we add. What You know, what sets us apart from other companies maybe? Yeah, so it's like building that trust, right? So like what makes you better than every other company that can do the same thing? Mm-hmm. And that's where you can't close a deal unless you've built that trust. So I would ask the question, were there, were there things that they said along the way that were hints at what they were looking for you to say back? Was there, was there a specific thing where they're yeah. like hinting to it or no? In, yeah, so in hindsight, they wanted to fill more of a partnership and I wasn't giving them that through my words. Whereas like that is one of our strong things as a business. Like there's like, it, let, let's go with a project that maybe hasn't went smoothly. There's never been a single customer that says like, you will support us to the end. Like that's what, you know, our customers, that's one thing they'll always say. And yeah, uh, you know, that, that plays into that partnership role. Yeah. So, so I would say in general, um, so I did technical sales for like a decade, right? Made a lot of money, closed a lot of business before I started uh, my companies. And technical sales is 80% selling, 20% technical. Mm-hmm. And too often people are uh, too involved or thinking from a technical standpoint and they miss certain sales type cues. Do you know what I mean? That makes sense. So it's like when technical people sell, you instantly go to, oh, from a functionality standpoint, performance, operational improvements, this, this, and that, and you're hitting, like nobody can beat you from that standpoint. But then if you miss that thing where they were talking about partnership, uh, maybe they didn't word it in a way that you're used to. Maybe they weren't super clear, like hindsight yeah. looking back on you, are like, yeah, they talked about it. You know, don't put all of the ownership on yourself. Maybe it wasn't super clear and you could have asked a question to get them to clarify. Yep. Um, but if you go into it thinking, I need to move this to the next stage of, in my pipeline. How do I do that? And you're only listening for those sales cues. You would have you would have less likely chance of that happening. Yeah, yeah, hundred percent. And like you know, it's like I don't look to like beat myself up on it too much, but it's like I am also like one of those people when it comes to like education and self improvement. Like I want to analyze what about this call, you know, went went in another in, in a in a way. What where where did the call go off? Right. And, you know, the funny thing was, is I was, I thought initially that the call was way worse than what it was. Right. And, and then I went back and listened to the recording of the calling and I was like, really that meeting was going fairly well. Everything was going fine up until like this point where they're like, you know, I'm really looking for a partnership and this doesn't feel like that. Yeah. Um, I mean, it's good that, I mean, be your worst critic. Right. Yeah. Um, I've done that too, where I go, where I get out of a call and I was like, eh, that was like mediocre at best. And then somebody from our marketing team or sales team would be like, dude, that was awesome. You nailed it. And I'm just like, I'm like, we'll see if the deal gets closed, we'll see. But like, I didn't feel great about it. So it's good to analyze yourself. It's always good to record. It's always good to listen back to it. Sales calls you have, if you have a team making calls for you, if you have a team that's doing meetings, stuff like that, listen to that stuff, give them pointers. As long as you do it from a constructive standpoint and you're not trying to be critical, always learn from, from every experience you have. Absolutely. Absolutely. Okay. Enough about, enough about how, how good or bad of a salesperson I am. Where, <laughs> where did it all get started for you? Uh, so I, I got my first industrial job as a engineering technician working at uh, a company called Greyhill in, in LaGrange, Illinois, Western suburbs of Chicago. 
My dad was a machinist. My aunt was the VP of, of the company. I, I came in, uh, didn't want to finish out high school, uh, didn't graduate. I was like three or five credits short. I just said, screw it. This isn't for me. I just want to work and make money. Um, got my first job maybe making, I don't know, this is back in, in 2000, uh, maybe nine, 10 bucks an hour being an engineering tech. So they were electromechanical switch company. The techs were the ones that came and fixed the hand machines, automation equipment, whatever, set it up for the next job. That was my, my job. Walked around with a little plastic toolbox at, at the age of 18, uh, fixing stuff that I knew nothing about, but I had a good mechanical brain. And so um, that was my, my first job in industrial. And, that, and that, from that, what was, what was your next transition? Yeah, so from that, my boss said, hey, dude, you want to make some more money? We've got this apprenticeship program. You take classes in college. Every class you complete, you get to the next level of the apprenticeship program, then you get more money. And I was like, cool. So I uh, had to get my GED first. So I went and just took the test for the GED, passed it, started going to community college, taking engineering classes, AutoCAD, um, SolidWorks, Pro-E, stuff like that, then getting into engineering, uh, like math, math programs, learning about mechanics, hydrofluids, like all that stuff. I was just taking classes at night after work. Did that for a couple of years, made more money, a couple bucks more an hour each time. Um, and then a job opened up in engineering uh, to be a draftsman, which I was like, cool, more money. That's what I'm about, right? So um, I knew AutoCAD. And so for, for nine hours a day, I was taking 2D prints and making adjustments to it for the design engineering team. And I did that for about a year before I just, I couldn't do it anymore, man. Like, <laughs> in a cubicle doing 2D prints back in 2002, like it was horrible. <laughs> I guess it, was it wasn't, wasn't for you? No, I wanted to go back to the, to, to the production floor. I wanted to get back to getting my hands dirty, fixing stuff, building stuff, fixtures, equipment. Um, so a slot opened up for a manufacturing engineer took that position, did that for a couple of years, then went uh, into application development engineering at a different company. Um, and then coincidentally or not, my first job in sales, um, I actually applied for a maintenance manager position at an injection molding company in Chicago. And I'm talking to the owner and he's, and he loved me, right? It was, a, it was about a 15, $20 million a year company. I knew nothing about being a maintenance manager. I knew nothing about how to fix an injection molding machine. Like literally I would have been fired in the first three days, <laughs> but the guy, but the owner liked me. And so he brings in, uh, he brings in the director of operations. He's like, yeah, this is Kyle. Like I'm talking for the last hour. It was like eight o'clock in the morning. Uh, he's like, he, he applied for maintenance manager job. I think he'd be a great fit. And so he started asking me some technical questions. I was like, no, man, like, do you know the difference between a, vertical and a horizontal injection molding machine and how would you handle this this issue for losing pressure in a pump and like all this stuff i was like dude i have no idea don't i have mechanics that would work for me that could fix that and so that's when uh the owner said you know what have you ever done sales before and i said you know kind of not like as a as a main role he said i think you i think i want you to be my sales engineer and so it gave me the job um, and that started my my nine and a half year career in plastics and injection molding. Um, closed hundreds of probably over a hundred million dollars worth of business at three different companies I worked at. Uh, made a lot of money for myself from a commission standpoint. Learned everything under the sun. That's when I started just consuming all content related to sales. Mm. Uh, all of the the classic history ones like um, Zig Ziglar and people like that, and then going into you know, some, some of the newer guys back in the late 2000s that were talking about, here's how you do selling. And I just became a student of it and then I would apply it. So I'd learn something, apply it that day, see if it worked. If it didn't, I'd throw it out, try something different um, and just built on that for, for about a decade. Whenever you, whenever you first landed that, that, that position there, was, do you think it was because you admit you uh, organically just kind of had like some type of like skip, sales knack about you? Yeah. So I, I learned over the years, like you're always selling, even if you're not in sales, you're always selling. You're either selling yep. your, your buddies, you're selling your employees, either mm -hmm. they're selling you or you're selling them. So I just knew how to sell myself really well. Cause I was a non-degreed engineer that was getting jobs that were competing with people that graduated from Purdue being paid the same amount. 
So I, I wasn't the best engineer, but I could sell myself and I could troubleshoot and problem solve. So I feel like, yeah, I just sold myself as an asset to him. And then he just kind of plugged me in and said, Mm -hmm. yeah, you could do, you could do sales. Yeah. That's one thing I see. Like if you, if you can go in with like a confidence level and, and just like, you're able to speak then like, so like say for instance, like a good, a couple of examples. And also to go back on the the other thing with you're saying you're always selling. One of my favorite books is uh, for sales is uh, Seller Be Sold by Grant Cardone. And yep, read it. I've read it about two dozen times, man. <laughs> That's a good book. Yeah, it is. Yeah, and like the, the thing with that book and just in the title alone, why that book is so uh, you know important to me is like even if selling isn't something I, I, def- I want to do, I definitely don't want to be sold. You know, yeah. <laughs> so it's like, yeah. uh, it, it kind of creates that ultimatum. Like if you're not selling, you're being sold and you're like, Oh, huh. And, and it really, yeah. it really clicked. Somebody's winning. Somebody's winning in that, right? Yeah. Yeah. And it really clicked for me because like expect, cause I, so I've listened to seller to be sold and I listened to it years ago. And then I started listening to it more, uh, like over the past like few months and, I know whenever you read books and listen to books or whatever, like they have different meanings through different stages of your, of your life and in your career path and everything, like certain things will hit you in a different way that they didn't whenever you, uh, let's in the past. And like the big thing for that one that kind of hit me in particular with my current scenario is like, if I'm not selling the customer, then they're selling me. And, and if the customer's selling me, then, you know, I'm not providing them this service that I, I know they need. I know that we're providing it at a different level than, than a lot of our competitors. And, you know, I'm being sold at that point. Right. And, yeah. and I'm being sold to a point where it's at a disadvantage for them as well. And that's where I was like, Oh, okay. I really clicked from. Yeah. There. I mean, either, either you're selling them on yes or they're selling you on no. Yeah. Right. Absolutely. And it's, and it's figuring out at what point do you just bail and give up or what point do you just keep pushing? Like not taking no for an answer. Yeah. Getting creative. Um, yeah, sales. Uh, I mean, everybody's always selling. Even though people are like, "I'm not a salesman, dude." Everybody's always selling. Yeah. in every aspect of your life. How do you feel like um, with the like getting out of your comfort zone uh, aspect yeah. of of selling? I feel like you have to. Um, you know, they always say like the magic happens when you're uncomfortable. Like you mm-hmm. have to, no matter what it is in in life, in sales, and business. Like you have to get to the point where you're uncomfortable because otherwise you're not, I feel like you wouldn't really be growing. If you're not trying something new that's yep. making you nervous or uncomfortable, you're not growing personally. You're not growing business-wise. You, like, you have to get that uncomfortable feeling mm-hmm. because it's uncomfortable for a moment in time and then it's just part of your routine. Yep. The key is, is that then find the next thing that's going to make you uncomfortable. Yeah. Otherwise, you will end up you know, reaching that bell curve and you're not going to keep progressing from there. Yeah, right? absolutely. Yeah, and as, as far as uh, as far as the uncomfortable point in a, in, a, in a sales perspective, you know, I'm thinking like, let's say for instance, like there's certain things that maybe at one point in time they didn't even cross my mind. Now they now now we reach a point where they cross my mind, and then when you reach a point where you're like debating, do I say that or not? And then you kind of break yeah. through and you say, oh, you say this thing. And, and, and it's, and it's, you know, it's kind of one of those things where it's like kind of pushing the boundary of like, is it acceptable to say maybe, right? Yeah. And, and I feel like, I, so I'm just now breaking into that, that, that later category right there. And I feel like where I become like an extremely good salesperson is after I break through to like the next levels where I basically, I'm not going to say I say anything and everything that I want, but like, you know, I noticed like when I, when I am breaking that barrier and saying some of the things that I wouldn't normally say, like, it, it cracks more laughs that people are like, you know, it, it creates almost more rapport than if I wouldn't. Yeah. Them. Yeah. I mean, it's allowing part of your personality to shine. Right. And it's also showing that you're comfortable. Um, and those meetings don't need to be stuffy. It can just be a conversation that you're having with somebody. Um, and once you get there, yeah, then, then you need to, to act like that with everybody, every deal, regardless of how big, who's in the room, like you need to play off of the people's personalities, obviously. Mm-hmm. Um, to know what to say and what not to say, but you coming with your own style and you being super comfortable and don't worry there. I feel like there's nothing that anybody can say unless it's an extreme thing that they say where you're getting into like 
very controversial stuff. There's nothing you can say that's yeah. Yeah, politics, religion, whatever. Um, and if you stay away from that type of stuff, there isn't anything that you can say or a way you could act, I feel like, that could kill a deal yeah. strictly because of that. Yeah. Right? Because you got to also keep in mind, and and I've done this over the past seven years at building MFG Tribe, if, if a client, if a potential client in the initial sales conversation discovery stages from a personality standpoint, isn't really a fit. Um, I don't want to work with them for an entire year on a project, right? right? So it's like if we don't vibe together at all, like I'm not saying that somebody has to be cool if I cuss every other word, um, but if we can't vibe together just from a personality standpoint, then we yeah. then it's not going to work in a partnership. Yeah, yeah. There's always gonna be like some level of conflict there, right? Yeah. And then, the t- and then I'll hear it from my team. Like we've, we've done it before. We've had clients in the past where, you know, short-term problems make short-term decisions, right? Mm-hmm. We yep. lost somebody, we needed to replace it. We had an opportunity. It wasn't the best fit for us. Wasn't super stoked about, about who from the client side we would be dealing with, but I was like, Hey, we need the revenue. And six months later, the team certainly let me hear about it saying that that was the biggest <laughs> yeah. pain <laughs> customer and like why'd you bring them in man i'm like dude i needed we needed the revenue yeah yeah so i made that mistake many times yeah i think you can definitely get caught up in like grabbing for revenue and, and not paying attention as much to the to the actual relationship itself you know a big thing for me too is like how you said you can say anything into a, in a meeting or, or you know sales meeting sales process and not screw it up entirely yeah right after if if the the conversation starts to go sideways the dealing with that is the the biggest challenge that that i'm working with at the moment so so you feel what like you you said something that you didn't want to say and now the conversation is falling apart from that or maybe yeah like to go back to that one relation where the person was like this doesn't feel like a partnership like oh yeah yeah. you know in my mind like if it would have just been a somehow turn this around. Whoa, man. Like, you know, like, like just combated that basically like, whoa, maybe you was taking me the wrong way. And then like kind of went more deep into like how this is a partnership yeah. and Hey, da, 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 we were just not seeing each other clearly for a second. Yeah. I mean, I would, I could definitely um, agree with that. Like what, so communication is key, right? But as you're saying things, people could take it the wrong way. Mm-hmm. So if like you know that you guys focus on partnership and you know that you guys are a great partner, but something he they didn't hear that. Right. And so when they're like, oh well, actually we're looking for a partner. Oh, dude, so are we. Like that's where it should be like, no, we are too. Yeah, there you go. I yeah. must not have yeah. I must not have communicated that. I apologize. I must not have communicated that. Like, I never want to do business with somebody that's that's not a mm. partner. If you ask our current clients and blah, 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 right? Yep. Like you gotta handle it like right away, which is why you know, people that are new in technical sales will miss that completely and then just answer it from a technical standpoint with yeah. whatever they're trying to pitch, right? Yeah. That's where like sales is, technical sales is 80% selling and sales types of skills and 20% technical. You know, that that scenario is perfect. And also too, like that that phrase of what you just said there was, exactly what I was kind of saying as well with the kind of breaking past a comfort zone. Like maybe somebody feels comfortable, uncomfortable about saying that thing, right? Like those type of things is something that I've noticed over like the past, like six months. Like I'm do, I've done so much more of that breaking past and saying like more uncomfortable things like, Whoa, whoa man. Like I didn't know, like I thought we were, you know, or whatever. It don't matter what it was yeah. like said, Right. But like just kind of breaking into that point of like kind of disrupting the conversation in a way to kind of reframe it. Yeah. I, yeah. I mean, you got like anything you can do to save a deal. If, if you know that they have a need, you truly believe that you have a solution to get them to solve that problem that they have, then always break past that uncomfortable point. Yep. And, and I could, I could pretty much promise that a far majority of the time it will only help you and never hurt you. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Right. It's just say what you say, what you think type of yeah. thing. 
Yeah. Like if it feels weird, just say it. Going back into going back into into some more like I guess nitty gritty and details of how your career path went. You landed the first position uh, as a sales uh, individual. How, how did yeah. that How did that process go for you at first? Like, did you take to it horribly? Horribly. <laughs> I mean, dude, I didn't know anything about custom injection molding at all. Nothing. Um, I was given I was given fifteen million dollars worth of current customers. I was told to grow it. Um, the 08 crash had just, uh, was, was just about to happen where we lost 30% of our total revenue, like mm -hmm. pretty much in three months. I, everybody in the company is looking to me like, all right, Kyle, what are you going to do? I was the only salesperson <laughs> and I'm like, I have no clue, but I'm going to figure it out and we're going to do this. And so it was, it was uh, a learning curve for the first, I'd say I struggled probably for the first 60 days or so. Uh, but somebody, a friend of mine, he's still a friend of mine. He was the former sales guy. Uh, his name is Kevin Morris. He uh, was the former sales engineer and he went into production. He was a production manager. Mm. Of that same company? And of that same company. Gotcha. And so I met him. He gave me shit initially. Like, you know, the <laughs> boss is walking around saying, you're going to save us. You're going to bring us so much money and all this stuff. I'm like, come on, man. You know, that ain't true. I don't even know what I'm doing over here. <laughs> and so we bonded and he said, all right, look, this is what you should do. And so because he was successful in sales at that company for three years previous, he said, start here, do this, this and that, focus on that and you'll be good to go. So he kind of gave me like within from an industrial standpoint, selling in that space to those customers, which most of them he closed. Mm -hmm. uh, he was like, here's how you want to handle this. Once he gave me that initial stuff, then I just took off and ran with it. Gotcha. And then a few years later, when I left, I took him with me. Did you? <laughs> and he, he's, still, he's still at the place that I took him uh, really? to. He's still where he, it's been. I think he just celebrated his 13 year anniversary. Oh, wow. He does, I don't know, 16, 18 million in revenue. Um, nice. He's just been dominating at that company for 13 years. Wow. So, what was that next company that you transitioned into? I just went to another injection molding company. Gotcha. Okay. So, so, so Kevin got a call from a recruiter that he knew, and he said, "I'm not looking to move, but Kyle might." Uh, Talked to the recruiter, specialist in plastics, said, "I got a company out in western part of Illinois, looking to do massive growth. I think that you could do it for him, considering what you've just done over the last two years." I said, "Cool." Uh, took the opportunity, jumped on it, worked there for a couple of years, uh, brought Kevin on board. We blew them up. They had to build a new 100,000 square foot facility because of all the new stuff. Uh, but my end goal was to own an injection molding company. Mm. Like I wanted to own a manufacturing company. Um, knew that ownership wasn't an option. Left after a couple of years, went to another injection molder. Uh, was very clear with my intentions. I want to buy you guys out in the next few years and own it. Um, blew them up as well was making a lot of money in commission um, and purchasing them was not on the table. There was other issues involved and I ended up getting fired uh, via text <laughs> because I was too expensive. I was getting uh, commission checks that were $50,000 a month. Wow. So my commission over the year was uh, scheduled to be at like $460,000 on mm. top of my base. After a few months of that, they said we can't afford it. Uh, so I got fired. Really? Was that, yep. I mean, was the revenue coming into them not, not worth the, that, that investment or they just couldn't keep up with the investment or. So it was, but a couple of programs were delayed to get started by like six months. They had to open up a third facility, buy some equipment, mm -hmm. uh, but they had some long-term debt from the original purchase of the company that complicated everything that I originally wasn't aware of, of like their financial situation. So. Gotcha. I totally respect them for making that decision. It sucked, but that's when I said, I will never make anybody else rich from an ownership standpoint. I'm just going to start my own thing. Yeah. I think at some point, like, you know, the ownership transition, this is why I really like to see, see in, in owners is, is individuals who are like striving to, to shoot for something bigger, to shoot for just more, right? Like, there's a lot of there's a lot of people that create companies and there's not really nothing wrong with it but people need to be aware of it that some people start companies just because they don't want to work for somebody else yeah really. like they want to work less hours and they want to do less work and so that's why they start a company thinking that it's going to be like yep. easier to 
to, to operate that versus uh, just being an employee. I hear you there, man. I've been, <laughs> I've been through, I've been through the ringer over the last seven years. Thought about quitting so many times, throwing up the towel, gotten job offers from people saying, Hey, leave that place. Come work for me. Uh, hefty salaries, good commission plans, but everything ended up working out. Yeah. It seems like things are going well for you, right? Yeah. We try and stay busy. Um, started making videos a few years ago, which I, which is the exact opposite of what I'm used to. Uh, never wanted to be on video. When I was a kid, I was shy. Um, back in the, the late 80s, every video of me as a kid is I'm not talking. I'm literally, I'm literally a mute. Um, but I saw an opportunity for us to stand out as a company, my brand to stand out. Uh, I think it was four, four or five years ago. Um, was watching Gary V, kind of like what you, what you said. Yep. And I was like, dude, I want to do that. I want to have somebody that follows me around yeah. and then I'm like looking around I'm like it would literally be following me around from like my office to the bathroom yeah like, every day yeah because I'm, I'm not doing anything exciting yeah uh so so then it then it turned into all right I need to educate people and try and entertain them um and so we put our first video up probably I think about five years ago the funny thing is like it's like what does Gary really do other than he's like operating it at you know a higher level but like what does he really do like he does the speaking engagements like but somehow he like finds a way to like make them entertaining and and, and also educational at the same time yeah because like I yeah it's good to, i mean i love his content but um and i love a couple of the things he said and i've read all of his books over the years but too many people jumped on that bandwagon they want like they want a whole crew following them it ends up just being boring content i think the making content around like what like what you not what you do, but like what your experiences are super valuable. And that's really what like gains the most attraction, especially like long-term and building like a, a very solid audience for people to come back and they want to keep watching your content. Yeah. You really got to, I mean, educate or entertain people. That's, mm -hmm. that's like the key, right? You got to keep them hooked, but then man, the changes that have been happening in the video world in the last like six months are just, ever evolving stuff that YouTube's been doing with changing oh, algorithms, yeah. changing importance on stuff, mm -hmm. um, more priority on YouTube shorts. Yeah. Uh, trying to compete with TikTok and mm -hmm. Instagram reels. Like it's ridiculous. Uh, Laura from our video team, she follows that stuff closely to where when we were planning out our 2023 strategy in December, um, her and Jordan said, all right, here's all the data. This is what matters in 2023. And this is what doesn't on YouTube. Yep. Um, this is what's important to, to do. And these mm -hmm. things you don't have to pay attention to. And it was all just based on some public stuff that YouTube said, but then also all of the big creators sharing the changes that they've seen and what works. Yeah. And it's like, wait, what do you mean? Like literally everybody was talking about this a year ago, that mm -hmm. this was super important to have this type of stuff in your description. And now it doesn't matter. What the yeah. hell is going on? Yeah, absolutely. It's like you know, we try to pay pretty close attention to it as well because, like, I, you know, if I see something like that that YouTube or any of the platforms are like doing, if I like, I'll, I'll, I'll like consciously be like kind of paying attention to different things. And as soon as I see one of those things, I'm like screenshotting it, sending a link. I'm saying, "Hey guys, we need to hurry up and do this." And like we try to like within like a week or two weeks, like be on whatever whatever new initiative that these companies are trying to do because like you said like there's always things that are different and changing but like i've noticed tiktok search is getting better that's one of the the ones that wasn't there before shorts is 100 percent one of them and and you know youtube's even i think they just launched in a few days ago like four days four days ago that they're uh gonna start paying creators for their short videos yep. then vertical videos verticals just popped up like two like two weeks ago right like now not only not just shorts but like vertical long form i noticed are like popping up in feed so i think that you know yeah. they're definitely going to be playing around with that one as well yeah so they're saying according to them they want shorts to show up in a youtube search or a google search mm -hmm. so they're placing so much emphasis on shorts similar to no. what instagram did with reels and so that's why we we're doing uh i think 30 30 something uh 30 something shorts a month for my personal brand mm. um and that's strictly because youtube is saying that they're gonna push them higher mm -hmm. and so we're checking it every day where if i google if i youtube search a, a topic where is that short showing up in my feed like yeah. is it 
four pages of scrolling or did they did they show me a short that's like the second video to kind of audit whether or not like when did they start implementing it um but but yeah we're paying attention to that and if shorts start showing up in google search results mm. um we want to be there like the leading edge yeah. of our niche and just own it yeah where we can then become a defensive position like number one so like i've done uh, one i did i did like a fitness youtube channel like back in the past it's kind of where i got like a lot of my marketing skills from was like trying to grow that fitness youtube channel and all that stuff right and then we have you know our brand and all the things we're doing and there's not been like a time of anything that's like this has been viral and it's exploded our brand We've had, we've had some things that are like maybe like semi-viral piece of content or something like that and stuff perform really well on like LinkedIn or whatever, right? But, yeah. you know, one of, the, one of the things that I think that is important to keep in mind is that like if you're producing all this content and you're producing it for all the different platforms and all the different ways of consuming it, you know, how you're talking about, you're like, you're, you're producing shorts. We're producing shorts. Like the, if, if ever and when... There either is an algorithm shift or that platform starts to do a different initiative that you've already been creating content for that. So like even whenever you're creating the content for when it's not popular, whenever whenever yeah. YouTube decides to flip on the switch or for for the either the algorithm or the the content uh you know platform, then immediately your content can go from getting no views to all of a sudden, you know, thousands of views. Yeah, on that shift. Yeah, yeah, and that's where um, you have to pay attention to what they're saying they're going to do and what changes they're making because they, when they make a change, it's not implemented that day, right? Yeah. Um, but you have to be quick to react to it to where your strategy is only good for let's say thirty days because yep. algorithm change all the time. Mm -hmm. And maybe the basic strategy, the main core of the strategy, is good for six months, nine months. But as soon as something like that happens, let's say you're making primarily long form videos, you're doing a couple of shorts out of those long form videos, whatever. As soon as you find out they're putting more priority on shorts, you need to flip that switch. Like you said, a week, two weeks, as fast as possible to say, guys, how are we going to make yeah. 20 times as many of this? Yeah. Right. Or if they say, oh, uh, now, now if you put this hashtag on videos, it will get more views or thumbnails are more important than they used to be, or titles don't matter mm -hmm. uh, if it's in the niche and we're not using SEO against it. It's just have it be super hooky and marketing type of hook language. Yeah. Um, you got to make that change immediately. And we're, we're always trying to game the system to figure it out because then we take the knowledge that we have, especially on LinkedIn, because that's where our clients spend most of their time, Take the stuff that we've tested, proven that works, apply it to a case study on a on one customer. If we see that we're seeing the same results from our standpoint to their side in the same industry, then we can start to, to push it out to other clients in the same space. Mm -hmm. But that that time frame of doing that is like 30 to 60 days, not six to 12 months. As of right now, do you see, are, are you, you guys are doing paid social, I would assume, right? Um, right now, we we are doing absolute zero paid social. Mm, nice. All okay. So everything's organic. Everything, everything's organic from a social standpoint. Even I think that I don't even we're not running any paid ads on anything. Gotcha. Um, so and the reason why is because I have in the past, uh, but once you get the organic up enough, especially with SEO and search, um, once you get to the first two, three, four positions of Google on your strategic phrases. As long as you keep producing the same amount of content, you're going to stay there. Um, and that, from a social standpoint, we know what works. So we just had our, we have a, a weekly video meeting. Uh, we were looking at the numbers in the last 28 days because um, we made a change in December to test LinkedIn's algorithm. Um, and so in the last 28 days, my personal profile has 61,000 impressions of my content. Nice. The month before that had like 32,000. Nice. And the main change that we did was posting the the frequency of posts. Mm. More. So we're we're more. Okay. So I went from posting one time a day to three times a day. Gotcha. Okay. And so initially the team was like, I don't know, man, you might piss people off. They're gonna be like, I'm sick of so sick of seeing Kyle. And I was like, I don't know that. Let's test it. Yeah. Funny. So we did it. And yeah. there's the results. Funny thing that you, you say that one. Grant Grant Cardone says one. 
uh, that, I, that I really like. It was something along the lines of like, they're sending out email campaigns and, and his team came to him and said, hey boss, you know, our people are unsubscribing from our email campaigns. You know, I think we need to slow down. And he's like, basically like, just 10 exit, double it, whatever he said, right? But he's like, he's yeah, going to increase yeah. it, not not decrease it. You know, that sure they got they got more unsubscribers, but then they also gained more on like the the strong end, people like buying more, people, you know. Yeah. I think you gotta test it. Yeah, I think that aggressiveness is important. And also I was uh we had another person on our podcast and they had a statistic that the people who are performing the best on LinkedIn, like the top people on LinkedIn with like millions of followers on LinkedIn are posting like 24 times a day. Yeah. And I'm like, I believe it. What? You know, I mean, obviously it takes like a whole, like teams of individuals and like you're a single individual can't really do that. I mean, it's just mind blowing. Cause like I've, I've tested, we, you know, I don't know how deeply we've strategically tested. I've definitely, we've definitely tested posting more from what I've experienced. I see a degradation in impressions per post, yep. but an increase in impressions like per day. Yeah. Well, that's going to happen, right? You post once a week, you're going to get more impressions. But cumulatively, if you add up your five posts in a week, it should it should be more than just one or two posts, right? Yeah. Um, so you got to look at, you can't audit it based on a single post because you're posting so frequently. You have to look at it at over seven days, did my impressions and engagements go up? Yep. Whereas too many times people are like, oh man, what did that one post get? I always say, who cares what one post did? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like, I don't care if that one post gets one like or or a hundred or zero. It makes no difference to me. I look at overall over seven days, let's get into some real statistics here and, and something I can put dis- base decisions off of. Seven days, 28 days, 60 days is what we're doing working. Is the overall impression and engagement increasing? And then for our business, are people going to our site from it? Are we getting new deals and opportunities? Are we closing more business? It's no different than when I tell my my team on Monday that the goal for next week is to make 1,200 cold calls. Yeah. Like we we track that down to every single call outcome. Yeah. Did you leave a voicemail? Did you connect with them? Was it wrong contact information? Was it busy? Um, did they say no, not interested? Are they unqualified? All of those are call outcomes. It's all tracked. Yeah. Once you have enough data to support it, you can say, does this make sense mm-hmm. to make 1,200 cold calls in a week? Yeah. It might not work. It may, it may be... Dude, you only need to do 350. That's the average that we're seeing. But without that data to support it, yeah. you're kind of just guessing, which is all that it is, right? Just, I'm just guessing. I said, hey, let's do three posts a day on LinkedIn, see if it works. Yeah, like actually, like one of the things that we, we've we just started doing on our sales process is the uh, more of the tracking of our outcomes, right? Like super, super important. Like, because like before, like, so I, you know, me not coming from like a sales background, like, and not knowing a lot, like the company that I came from, they never had a single salesperson either. Like they were all just based on like recurring business from basically industry contacts that they had had from in the past, right? Pretty much zero sales. They had like three customers, some other customers and stuff, but like it was pretty much three customers. So like there were the exposure of like sales processes and things like that, like wasn't there. So like now as like a company owner, like I have to define like what our sales processes, all the research that goes into that, right? What are our sales processes, what are the things that we need to track, like, you know, and, yeah. and then developing things and thinking about them as initiatives, right? Like, you know, we have our, you know, LinkedIn outreach campaigns, we have email campaigns, calling campaigns, you know, on-site visit campaigns, like all these different things that need to live alone as their own, own initiative and, and its own strategy. And, each one of them is going to have like its different ratios of outcomes and also the amount of uh, resources that it takes to, to deliver those outcomes. Yeah. And then you just got to track all of that and see um, if you're tracking your deals and your opportunities in a CRM, putting a source of that is important. Like where did this deal come from? Oh, that came from a LinkedIn outreach campaign. Where did this one come from? That was a phone call. This one was a cold visit. And once you have enough deals in your pipeline, one lost, still in the pipeline regardless, you can look at the deal source to determine, here's all my activity and I know how, um, at a micro level, how this is performing, right? Yeah. I make calls, I do emails, I can see mm. the, the predictive analysis of what I'm going to get back there. Mm. But if you look at the big, big picture, how many of them are equating to deals and start to even even say, these deals came from these sources and maybe there's a source that provides a higher value behind a deal from a dollar amount standpoint. Mm -hmm. 
And then looking at all that and then saying, I want to invest more time in this. We need a 2x, 5x, 10x our activity there and see if we could figure out, does it, do we get some sort of a linear relationship to activity versus opportunity? So yeah, track everything. Yeah, like one of the one of the core metrics that that we've been focused on as a company is uh, cost per customer meeting. So like that that okay. particular metric, we're looking at that and like the different initiatives, like you know what what all the cost is associated to land in like that singular meeting. Yeah, and so for that, like that's that's uh, definitely been super useful to like decide like what directions and what initiatives that we need to like reinvest into. Like as we're expanding, we know like what initiatives are working the best. So as we grow, maybe we want to grow and diversify, but then we also want to grow and, and, and spend more of our dollars towards a particular initiative. So that way, uh, basically we're getting the best bang for our buck. Yeah, exactly. And then just make all your decisions based on that and then test it. And if it proves to be correct, then keep doing it. And if it doesn't, make another strategy adjustment. Absolutely. That's the best way to do it. Nothing is etched in stone. You got to pivot at every single opportunity. What do you uh, feel like or know that helped you in in creating like sales systems? Um, So part of it was reading. Um, I finally, after... 25 years of life found that reading is useful. <laughs> Didn't learn anything in high school. That was uh, read how to read some books that my dad gave me when I was younger on how to rebuild muscle cars because I did that when I was a kid. Um, but so it was one educating myself. So finding one or two, three quote unquote experts, mm-hmm. understanding the way that they say to do it, but then adjusting it based on my specific niche, specific situation because. If they're doing sales for, you know, one industry, it's going to be different than mine. Mm-hmm. And then it's really just test it, see if it works. If it doesn't, throw it out. If it does, do more of that um, until you finally end up coming with a pretty solid plan and a system that is repeatable. But then from there, it's repeatable for a point in time because everything's always changing. So then you have to track it, monitor it, adjust it, constantly be learning about new things that people are doing, mm-hmm. always educating yourself, seeing if based on you building this system that you know works well, this new information, if you implemented it or took the idea and said, that made me think of something else, implementing that into your system and just testing and seeing if it works. Yeah, And then adjusting it to where eventually the system five years later is at the core roughly the same, mm-hmm. but it's way different in the daily activities than it was five years previous. Yeah, absolutely. And it's because it's constantly evolving. You think primarily a lot of the stuff that you've learned has been has been from just like educating yourself, reading books on it and things along those lines? Yeah, I mean, I didn't, I don't have like some uh, proprietary sales system that's like, oh, this is Kyle's way of doing it. Yeah. My way of doing it is is a combination of dozens of people's ways of doing it or a, a foundational knowledge of like Grant Cardone saying money follows attention, right? Mm-hmm. It's true. It does. Yeah. So then thinking to myself, how do I get more attention? Mm-hmm. And looking up, how are people getting attention? Yeah. What's trending yeah. now? Videos are. I need to do videos. Mm-hmm. I'm going to start doing videos. So it's like that where I'm just like, taking some quote unquote salespeople's uh, stuff that I've learned over the years and then, yeah. but then also applying practical information mm. into it from a sales standpoint. Yeah. It's kind of, it's kind of funny how like a, a super simple thing like that, where like money follows attention, right? That's like a small thought. And then by yeah. following that thought down the rabbit holes, like kind of how you, you experience new things. Like, I don't know how many people are doing like LinkedIn outreach, like, you know, which is, you know, one of our, our, our initiatives. And like, you know, now I'm even contemplating like Facebook outreach. Like it's, it's outside of our sector. A lot of people might think it's weird. The, the hard, yeah. really the biggest thing that I see as being an issue with it, it's going to be much more difficult to find the people, right? Like how do you find like this, it's going to take a lot more search time and finding like this particular candidate. But like the thought process behind that in it potentially being effective is let's say for instance, you're outreaching on LinkedIn, they're not responsive but maybe they don't use LinkedIn that much, right? You go check right. out the profile. They don't, they haven't never posted a post. Like maybe they have a LinkedIn profile. They get on it once every three months. 
So yeah. if you're running, if you're running, you know, message campaigns to them, well, if they only get on once every three months, and when they get do get on, they don't check their messages. Like you might be able to find that that person somewhere else. Like especially if you can somehow identify that they're a perfect candidate. Yeah, that's where if we find people, like we build lists, and then we just pick up the phone and call them, mm. and then they get into our system. We call them. Um, I mean, I've even done stuff sending sending things in the snail mail, yeah. like just testing to see if it would work. Hey, here's mm. 150 people that we know would be a good fit to do business with. We can't get a hold of these guys, send them a postcard at work. Mm. And then COVID messed all that up, right? <laughs> Cause then it's like, wait, 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 are they at home or at the office? Yeah. Like we just did a poll. I think it was this, I think it was yesterday's poll was, or maybe it was last week's percentage of people that work from home. This is strictly an industrial because 90% of my, my followers on LinkedIn are, are in industrial. Percentage of people that work from home, work at the office, or do a hybrid. Hmm. And so we're doing these polls. We're getting a lot of engagement. Like I think on that one, we got like nine or 10,000 impressions of it. Uh, but we're using it as data yeah, yeah. to understand the industry to then use as marketing tool for us. If it works for us, then one of our clients, we would test it on one yep. of our clients. Does it work for them? And now all of our clients, we offer it to them. Do you guys want to try this out? Yeah. Um, but yeah, it's the phone is the fastest to, way to get an answer. What, what did you? What, what, what were the percentages on that again? Um, it was on the poll. I feel like it was. Uh, I'd have to go back through and, and look at it. Let me see sure. if I can find it while we're talking. It was something. It was like a split. There was more people still working at home hmm. than I had thought. Yeah. Which was, and then there's there was a lot of hybrid people, which I expected, but the amount of yeah. people that are like work from home was not expected. It was a higher percentage. I want to say it was like 40%. I'll see if I can find it. Yeah, definitely another thing too. Like this year, like is definitely, one that's definitely helped is like the calling thing. Like that's probably been the number one thing that's especially helped our, our PO conversion or not our PO, our quote conversion, quote quote to PO conversion. That I think it's helped like tremendously. It's it's probably over doubled our conversion rate uh, and, and a lot. Yeah. And that, that's because like me not being a salesperson and me being pretty introverted it's like send the quote out and then just wait you know what i mean and, yeah, right <laughs> and uh yeah, yeah i mean and, and the thing that like that popped in my mind that, that that helped me personally was like we're helping them walk through the decision we're helping them analyze the quote instead of just looking at the quote and saying i'm confused or these numbers are too high or whatever it may be right like we can call and we can identify like what the issue is or or i or help you know, answer some, some clarifying questions or open the door for negotiation because like a lot of us people, like they won't necessarily negotiate, right. They'll just be like, Oh, this number yeah. is too high onto the next one. And if you can yeah. like, have some type of conversation, like, Oh, what's going on with the quote? Da, da, da. Oh, the price is kind of high. Okay. Well, what about it's high? Oh, well, da, 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 da. And like, and like, it might be something simple, like the installation cost is too, too high or something like that. And it, yeah, you know, and sometimes like, it could either be an oversight and it is too high or it could be like we could or just negotiation standpoint, right? We could take less profitability from a, a particular aspect of the project. And even like another thing, like for like technical sales and, and quoting and stuff like that, like you could even be too low, right? Like, oh, yeah, how you you're, you're quoting this whole entire robotic system and it's and it's this price. Why, why yeah. is that? Oh, you didn't include the, you know. The robot cost. Oh, why didn't you include the robot cost? Well, we thought you were going to purchase the robot. You talked about it in the meeting. Oh, yeah, that's right. Like, you know, so. Yeah, yeah I always, I whenever we do quotes, um, I always, I'm, I'm anxious to follow up. I yeah. want to call them and be like, all right, man, what do you think? <laughs> what do you think about it? Let's walk through it. Because I want to know. I want to handle that objection. I want to handle any issues. I want to get insights. I want to know. Is this thing going to move to the next stage of the pipeline? Is this most likely going to die? What's your timeline to close? Is this mm. something you want to do in the next 30 days, 60 days, six yeah. months? Because yeah. I want to put pred predictable uh, numbers around it. And I can't sure. do that if I don't know. Yeah. Um, but I'm with you. I wish that send the quote and it's like they just send you back information <laughs> and say, Yep, we're good. We're gonna sign in like three weeks. I promise. Yeah. But some of those, some of those exact questions have been like a huge thing that helped as as well. Just asking like, hey, when are you looking to cut a purchase order? When are you looking to have, when are you looking for completion of this project, install? And we, one thing that we've identified is now like this year, there's like a lot more customers that are looking to cut a PO, like as soon as they can get approval, 
and they want to get in installed as soon as they can get approval, which is, yeah. is something that we didn't really experience like over the past couple of years. It, it was more of a, we'll install this during December shutdown or we'll install this during 4th of July shutdown. Now things are just like, how can we get this thing implemented as quickly as possible? All right. So I found the stats okay. on that. So, so 189 votes so far. Okay. There's two days left. 19% of people work in the office, wow. 40% at home, 7% are in the office, but would rather be home <laughs> and 30, 34% have a hybrid. Wow. That, so the, 100, 190 people. Now, there a lot of them are sales and marketing people. Salespeople, sure. I would expect, they're working remote. Right. Yeah. yeah. No, that in, that in office is like extremely low. I think, given like you yeah. said, you're, you're, you have a different demographic, so like it, that definitely probably plays a decent role in it. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm not connected with like, you know, fourteen thousand production managers. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, but my mix is primarily engineers, sales engineers, industrial marketers, and CEOs of industrial companies mm -hmm. and the whole C-suite. Um, so it's a, it's a decent mix of, I, I did not expect the, in the office to be as low as it was. For a company like yours, that's doing sales and marketing, like doing sales and marketing activities is very relatable to, to what your company does, right. As a service. And so like, I guess here's like one of my thoughts is like, you know, for us as a company, you know, we're, our, our service isn't marketing. Our services is, is industrial automation systems, robotic systems. So it's kind of funny. Like a lot of times, like people will want to like book me for like a speaking engagement and it's because of marketing. Yeah. Right. And so like my thought, like, I don't know, I'm just kind of trying to analyze, like, I guess maybe like creating more relatability to like what we do versus like the marketing. Like, I, I guess one thing is like me personally, I don't necessarily like to be known for like the marketing, right? I want to be right. I want to be known for like what we do as a company. Yeah. So, I mean, you could, you could split your personal brand versus the business brand, right? You can have your company brand that's focusing on one thing, your personal brand that has a mix of both. Um, or you just got to look at it and say, like, what do I want to be known for? At the end of the day, what do I want people to know me for? And once you know what you want to be known for, then all of your content, all of your stuff has to be focused around that specific yep. subject. Mm -hmm. And then every, and then it'll just happen. Right. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. That makes so sense. I feel like, I feel like that's just a natural way to do it. No, hundred percent makes sense. Cause like one of the things we just did this last year, I think it's been like within the past six months, we've uh, rebranded towards robotic welding. So like we've been putting out all different types of like robotic content, material handling, blah, blah, blah. Um, but we, and we've been doing a lot of robotic welding behind the scenes, but now we're wanting to kind of convert the image of our company to being very specific to robot welding, robotic welding, like MIG welding, BIW line, uh, yeah. type of work. And so that right there alone will like that, uh, will clearly define, define our message more. And, and, and this is another big thing is like that I've realized that as an importance over like the past like couple years, and especially like this past year of like, we need to create content that is very clear to our message, brand, brand colors and brand imaging. Like that's another huge thing over the past like year that we, we've done like the MCU, like you having the gold and the white and the blue and, and uh, having those things in there are, are to tie are to be associated with this brand, right? Like brand color. Right. Like I think a lot of people don't think about their brand in that way. You know, the, the circuit board that you see here, like it's actually intended to kind of tie back a little bit into like elite automation uh, to some degree. So like elite automation has like the circuit board stuff and a lot of its pieces of creative um, to kind of create that brand image and, and you know, what people for, for people to expect a certain look from our content. Yeah, um, I mean, as long as it all comes together and it hits whatever North Star you're going after, right? Whatever whatever direction you want the business to go, then just everything that you do, uh, the from graphics to videos, articles, what you guys post has to be in alignment with that. <clears throat> um, I look at it as if I'm you and you're like, I want to be, I want to, I want to grow this company to 20 million a year in revenue. Um, one way to do that is be the loudest person in your space that is creating content, mm -hmm. right? From an ownership standpoint, mm -hmm. show me 
an owner in your space that's willing to make content. Yeah. Because most likely there's no one. Yeah. Right? Because one, the personality type, two, the the you know, the responsibilities that they have, whatever. They have zero interest in doing that. They have a marketing team, they have a sales team that will do it for them. But you could be the loudest in the space and with with attention, money follows, right? If we look at our LinkedIn data, I'm not sure exactly how like how accurate the data we see is, but like it says something along the lines of like we're in the top three of system integrator companies on LinkedIn, okay. and and one of one of them is JR Automation, which is you know the if I'm not mistaken the largest automation company in the world. Yeah. I mean, if that's what if that's what the data is showing you, then what you're doing is going down the right path. And I would just say, since you're smaller than the big boys, you got to do ten times as much stuff. Right? <laughs> and so, and you could you could get some hyper growth just by increasing output, right? But but yep. by providing value, right? So it's not just yeah. fluffy BS stuff that you want to create yep. content, but like talk about your experience, talk about mm -hmm. a project that you tried that you quoted that you didn't get, talk about how you guys. Here was the problem they were trying to solve. Here's the solution we presented to them and we got mm -hmm. it. Or we didn't get it because of this, this, and that. Creating stuff around that mm -hmm. to where when I think systems integration, I think of you, you're trying to get into my subconscious because you're sharing so much knowledge about systems integration. Slight, this is slightly off topic, but one of the things that we were looking at is so like we, we post up like micro content of like these manufacturing come up podcasts yep. and like one of the shifts that we, I, I think we've implemented it already, but like instead of posting like the same person's micro content all week that we offset all the, the outputs over like, say for example, we're doing seven, seven micro contents per per podcast session, yeah. instead of doing those across seven days, we do those across seven weeks. Yeah. And then each individual day is a different person. Yep. Yep. That's, so I 100% agree with that. I mean, we do stuff similar where um, typically we don't post the same MC content on like in conjunction back to back typically um, because it would just look weird from like the shirt that I'm wearing, the setting that I'm in. So we try and mix it up with. Yeah. Like, up, like yeah. this one was shot on this day. This one was shot on a different day. Uh, Laura will say, is Kyle wearing a different mm -hmm. shirt? Like, hey, tomorrow, like you've worn a logo blue yeah. polo two days in a row. Tomorrow I need you to wear something different. So it's like, mm -hmm. yeah, I 100% I agree that you need to mix it up um, across across the different people. So that way every day somebody new is is on your feed. Yeah, yeah. Like one of our thought processes behind it was a couple things. One they don't mistakenly see like see your face and then be like, oh, I just watched this yesterday. Yeah. It's actually a new piece of content. And then secondly, if we're if you're blasting them with, with the same face seven days in a row, that they're like, this is some spam content or something. Yeah. Yeah. They start totally. to like spam, just putting too much content out, like yep. give them something new and fresh. Yeah, exactly. It's kind of like it's kind of like advertising on social. You don't want to run the same digital ad every time, right? <laughs> you gotta have at least two to four creative pieces. If they didn't click on it the first time, they're not gonna click it on the second time they see it unless you show them something different. Kyle, what are what are some uh final tips that you have for, for people in our industry? Final tips, I would say anything's possible. You can literally do anything that you want. Uh, never give up. There, There is no such thing as failure if you never give up, right? So many people have said that before. Um, yeah. And just try and be different than everybody else. Because in this industry, so many people look exactly the same. So figure out what's the one thing that you can do to make yourself stand out in whatever capacity. Uh, whether it's to your employer, to the public, on social, what's something that you can do that can make you stand out versus everybody else that looks and, and does the same thing as you? Where can people find you at? Uh, so you can find me on LinkedIn. Follow me. I always tell people on, on my shows when I go out there, uh, if you send me a connection request and you try, me and, try and sell me some shit I don't need, uh, I will not accept it. So follow me on LinkedIn. Send me a connection request. I've got a YouTube channel. Uh, over 500 videos on YouTube, um, Instagram, just if you look up my name, you'll come across me. YouTube and LinkedIn are the most uh, active. Yeah. Like I said, I've been, I've been consuming your content on, on, uh, on YouTube quite a bit recently. Can you give us, can you give us a little bit of a brief rundown of what your 
sales course entails? Yeah, so Technical Sales University is, I think it's six courses, eight hours of video content of me walking people through start to finish, how to pitch, how to build prospect lists, how to sell industrial, um, everything in between. And then we're coming out with three or four new courses, I think in the next one to two months that I have to shoot. Um, one being about sales management, management, one being about uh, how to use the phone from a cold calling standpoint to generate revenue. Um, and any current students get access to those future courses uh, and you have lifetime access. So if you sign up, you get lifetime access and then any new courses that come through, uh, you get them for free. Does it, is this something that has just a sticker price on it or do you got to call in and get a quote? Or? Yeah, if you just go to, uh, you can go to training.technicalsalesu.com. Uh, that is the training platform and you can see the pricing right there. Um, it's on okay. the website. You just click which package you want, pay it and get immediate access into it. Awesome. Maybe we'll, maybe we'll make that purchase after we leave here. All right. Sounds good, man. <laughs> All right. Thank you very much for being on call. I appreciate it, man. We will talk soon. Absolutely. All right. Thanks. Thank you.